Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Digitally Uploaded Podcast, the companion podcast for digitallydownloaded.net. I have rest the controls of Alan. He's not here today, so I'm going to be your host, and you should feel very lucky about that, or not. Um, but we do have a cracking program for you today. We've got a lot of good stuff to talk about, and we've got a lot of cool peeps on. And we'll start with our regulars. Hello, Trent, you're back. Hello. Yes, I am. It's good to have you back, as always. Uh, we also have Harvard. Hello, Harvard. Hello, guys. Cool. And we have Kiwi Matt, who's been back from wherever he was. He was on some kind of quest up Mount Doom or something. Hello, Matt. Welcome back. Hello. I'm back from Mount Doom, apparently. <laughs> That's what, what all New Zealanders what, do, right? What a fun adventure. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like a, me, yeah. it's like a pilgrimage. Oh, no. Everyone on their, on their 21st birthday has to go to Mount Doom. <laughs> And finally, we have a special guest this week. We have Lee. Lee is a game developer. He's been around in Australia for quite a while creating games, and you'll probably know him best for his work on um, Hand of Fate 2. That's, I guess that would be your most famous game, I want to say, or at least I want to say that because I want everybody to play it. If you haven't played it yet, play Hand of Fate 2. But yes, Lee. Hello, Lee. Hi, Matt. How's it going? <laughs> uh, and just so we can update people on what you actually have been doing, what's your most recent game? Just so I can get people to go and buy it to you know, uh, get some value for being on this podcast for you. Yeah, right. Uh, my most recent game uh, is Windbound, which is uh, by Five Live Studios. Um, I did a bunch of narrative design and uh, additional writing for that one. Uh, it is nice. It's a lot of sailing and being murdered by pigs on distant islands, but mostly sailing. There you go. See? Um, that's uh, that sounds good to me. All right, we will. <laughs> we we do have a lot of podcasts to do, so let's wrap this little introduction up, and uh, we'll listen to some lovely Hatsune Miku tunes. I don't know what yet, so sorry about that. Uh, and then we will be back, and we will talk about the games of next month. <laughs> Games 
So to come out on PlayStation 5 or Nintendo Switch, we don't care about Microsoft here. And then we're going to talk about our favorite, or the games that we're looking forward to the most. And if there is an Xbox game that's actually worth looking forward to, I'm sure Trent will fill us in as the one person that actually plays that console. All right, so here we go. First up, we have a game called Marquette. Marquette? Marquette. It's coming out on PlayStation 5 on March 2, and it is a first-person recursive puzzle game, and it actually looks pretty good. I'm going to be playing this for review for digitaldownloader.net, and it has a nice aesthetic, so I'm hoping it's good, otherwise I'll be wasting my time. We also have the Yakuza Like a Dragon port coming to PlayStation 5 finally on March 2, so you can enjoy turn-based Yakuza in HD on your Sony console. That's a good thing. Um, scrolling through. Then you have very little to look forward to until Crash Bandicoot 4 that comes out on March 12. And I'm sure there's a lot of Crash Bandicoot fans out there that will be looking forward to that. We have Monster Truck Championship, if you're into that, I guess, March 16. Uh, <laughs> March 18 brings the PlayStation 5 version of Marvel's Avengers. If anybody is actually interested in that game, there you go. You can look forward to that. Um, and then we really don't have too much else until the end of the month where Balin Wonderland comes out on March 26. Now, the demo for that was absolutely terrible, but who knows? Maybe they've used feedback from that demo to improve it. I would like to see them do that because it actually looks nice. It's got a charming presence um, and the character looks pretty fun. It's just the game is not very good right now, but who knows? They may have fixed it. That would be good. Um, da, 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 da. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 comes out on March 26th. If you haven't already played that, there you go. You can play it in PlayStation 5 definition. And that's it for the PlayStation 5. So another fairly quiet month for the console, but I imagine that the interesting games will start coming towards the end of the year for that device. Uh, on the PlayStation 4, meanwhile, there's quite a bit to look forward to. Um, Harvest Moon One World comes out on March 2. Now, Harvest Moon is not Story of the Seas Story of Seasons. Story of Seasons is what Harvest Moon once was. Now, Harvest Moon is a different thing, and it's not as good, but it's still a farming thing, so it should be interesting um, and fun for people who enjoy that stuff. So that comes out on March 2. Neptunia Virtual Stars, Virtual Stars comes out on March 2 as well. If you're into really offbeat, funny humor, there you go. You can look forward to that. It's very Japanese JRPG thing. I can actually talk about this stuff without Alan flipping out at me. This is a nice week. Um, Kill It With Fire comes out on, play, on on March 4. That's basically like a first-person shooter, but instead of shooting people, you're torching spiders, which is pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that. As an Australian, I sympathise with the people that made that game for the reasons that they no doubt made it. Um, what else we got? What else we got? Genso Skydrift comes out on March 9. I think that's... Ah, that's a Toho Project racing game. Okay, we'll give it a go. What else we got? Neverwinter Sharanda comes out on March 9. Is that the MMO? That might be the MMO. Gets an expansion. Or it might be an independent game. I don't know. I actually haven't looked into that. But Neverwinter is pretty cool. So I will check that out when it gets closer to release. We also have Root Film coming out on PlayStation 4 on March 19th. What's, what's funny, Harvard? <laughs> Nothing. It's just, it's going to be a good game. 
It's going to be a good game. And it's not what you may imagine from the title, Root Film. Um, Root Film is going to be full of excitement. It's going to be very... <laughs> very... A sequel to Root Letter, which was a great game. <laughs> it is. It is a sequel to Root Letter, but it is actually not um, related to it. It's a completely independent game. So if you haven't played Root Letter, you probably should, but you can get into Root Film without having played it. And yeah, it looks like it's going to be quite good. It's got a nice aesthetic again, and... Yeah, the first one was actually pretty successful by visual novel standards, so pretty mainstream, and hopefully this one is as well. On March 24, we've got Love Live School Idol Festival After School Activity YY Home Meeting. That is the actual oh, title for the game. Um, Alan's not here, but I need to make fun of that title. It's yeah, too that, long. that is a crazy long title. But the game itself should be good. It is a rhythm game. Um with all the music from the Love Live series, which is a lot of really good music, with uh, PlayStation 4 3D graphics. So if you're into your rhythm games, especially if you're into the likes of Miku and whatever, you should probably look forward to this one. We also have um, K's and the Wild Masks coming out on PlayStation 4 on March 26. I don't know much about this game, but it has a nice little box art, so that's why I mentioned it. Balem Wonderland also comes out on PlayStation 4, and same thing there. I hope it got better than its um, demo. All right, then we run through to Nintendo Switch, and then we'll talk about which one's uh, interesting to us. Harvest Moon also comes out on Switch on March 2, and there's an awful lot of indie games coming out on the Switch. The Switch is just getting deluged with this stuff, so I'm scrolling through a lot of things here, and not a lot of them are interesting. But there's a lot coming out, rest assured. Kill It With Fire also comes out on Switch on March 4. Um, there's a game called Task Force Delta Afghanistan coming out on March 4. I'm sure I'll love that. It looks like one of those first-person shooters, but indie rather than by Activision. Um, Apex Legends comes out on Switch on March 9. And I know there are a lot of people who liked... Apex Legends, and there you go. You'll be able to play it on your Switch. It will be free to play and stuff. Battle Brothers comes out on Switch on March 11. That's a tactics RPG where you lead a mercenary co company in a gritty, low-power, medieval fantasy world. So, yep. I'm still scrolling. Crash Bandicoot does come out on Switch as well, and it actually has a different look to it. Um, I saw comparisons between the screenshots from PlayStation 4 and 5 and Nintendo Switch. Actually, it might just have been PlayStation 5 and Nintendo Switch. But with the Switch version, they've gone with a more kind of um, cel-shaded anime look, which is neat, I guess. So I'm not sure if they did it for technical reasons or because they thought that the aesthetic might appeal more to Switch players, but... I it's think like that's the a Game Boy era where like the games were like completely different to the consoles. That's a good time. <laughs> it is still the same game. It's not actually a completely different game. It's not like they've done a 2D platformer for the Switch versus 3D for the other consoles. But um, it does look different, and I think that's the version I'll go for if I do play it. Uh, here's an interesting one. On March 16, Saviors of Sapphire Wings and Stranger of Sword City Revisited comes out. Now, that is a long title, but there is a good reason for that. That's actually two games, <laughs> uh, and you get a pack of them together in the one. Those are dungeon crawlers in the wizardry 
vein and having played Stranger of Sword City on the PlayStation Vita when it was new, they're very good. They come to us from Experience Inc. So they've got absolutely gorgeous production values and very tightly refined uh, dungeon crawling mechanics. So you should definitely look forward to that if you do like wizardry on any level. If you haven't yet played Kingdoms of Amala, the Switch port comes out on March 16. I'll probably pick that up again just to have the game on the go. I really like King Kingdoms of Amala. That's Hope a good one, right? Yes, that is a good one. What's the bad one? Was a bad like Kingdoms game? Um, there's a lot of bad games with the word Kingdoms in the title. <laughs> no, I just remember two RPGs. One was the book called Kingdoms. One is good and one is bad. But this yeah, is a good one. I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but yeah, Kingdoms of Amalur is definitely a good one. <laughs> it's like a single-player MMO, and yeah, it's it's got this open-world thing going for it, but it does it in a nice way rather than a exhausting way. And yeah, it's it's a very good game. I've already got review up on digidownloaded.net if you want to check it out. Uh, Root Film also comes out on Switch, so you can enjoy the Root on the go. Um, Plants vs. Zombies, Battle for Neighborville Complete Edition comes out on the Switch. That's the shooter, right? Yeah. That's yep. like the tower defense shooter thing where you play co-op. Or is that the... I can't no, remember. Yeah, I played... Shooter, uh, yes. Shooter. I played the first Plants vs. Zombies shooter game, I think, and on back on the PlayStation 3. And with that one... There was a tower defense mode. You didn't have to play like competitive versus multiplayer. There was a tower defense mode. I don't know if that'll come back. That was pretty cool. That was more fun than the multiplayer, the deathmatch thing. Story of Seasons, Pioneers of Olive Town comes out on Switch on March 23. So that's the good Harvest Moon, and you can look forward to that exclusively on Switch. I will have a review of that up. I'm already playing it a bit, but I can't talk about that because embargoes. The House in Feta Morgana, Dreams of the Revenants edition, comes out on Switch on March 25. That is a visual novel. And I missed the original release of that. You played it, didn't you, Matt? I didn't, but I've heard lots of very good things about it. It came out on PC a few years ago. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, anyway, it's one it's of those games that nobody has played but the like three people who have played it love it <laughs> swear, swear by it and spend all their time on twitter telling everyone else to try and play it okay cool well um it is it does look good it's a gothic suspense tale which is just a nice idea and yeah i'll look for i'll give it a go what else have we got i think that's about it oh monster, monster hunter rise <laughs> oh damn the big one right at the end that comes out on march 26 that's the latest monster hunter game you can still play that demo can't you that was on i think you can't anymore because it's uh, a, until march right did they stop it did they okay um the demo was good you got to take on two of the monsters i am absolutely terrible at monster hunter couldn't beat the second one so there you go i'm really not good at monster hunter but it was fun i, I enjoyed getting beaten Which is part of the Monster Hunter experience. Yeah. yeah. The my, way my friend says the suspicion is that they make the second monster in the demo extra hard so that everyone gets wrecked by it, and then they all go, oh, I need to go get my revenge, so they actually buy the full game. It's quite possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way I usually play Monster Hunter is I get a team of four people together, and then I just make sure that the other three are really good, and then I let them do it, and I just kind of stand at the back. 
that's that's my monster hunter strategy. It only works to a point. Like with the lower level monsters, it's okay because you don't need to work as a team so much. <laughs> but then I start to get beaten pretty badly and give up. Anyway, <clears throat> all of, <clears throat> I've lost my voice having read all of that list out. Um, Lee, as the guest on the podcast, yep. give us a pick. You get one pick. So, one yeah, just pick, one. Yep. Uh, if you can uh, only play one game next month, which game is it going to be? Oh, God damn it. Um, I guess it'd have to be Monster Hunter Rise then. Um, I've been a fan of the Monster Hunter series since the uh, the 3DS, at least. That was when it became a lot more accessible and they were they were really kind of pitching to the, the Western audiences in a, a much broader uh, fashion. Um, and uh, I think that they're brilliant games to play on the go. Um, I really enjoyed the, the last one on the PlayStation and I think this one is going to like I, I i struggled a bit with the the last switch monster hunter game for whatever reason um i think i was spoiled then by by world um but uh rise seems to be the business so i'm hoping that i'll be able to play that and play that online with people because everyone has a switch now so that's that's my pick that last monster hunter on switch that was just the remake wasn't it um it was maybe like a, a sort of the, the equivalent of a Super Street Fighter or something, right? Like yeah, that's that, what right? I thought. It's yes. yeah. So this is the first kind of new Monster Hunter since Monster Hunter World just mm. kind of changed how Monster Hunter was seen by everybody. Yeah, this is the first one since then to get a yes. release, and it's a Switch exclusive. There you go. Mm. All the good games come into Switch. Um, Trent, I know. No, actually, I know which one Trent's going to pick. Obviously, Trent's about the the Call of Duty Afghanistan game. Wait, Call of Duty is coming out in like March this year. What a no, no, it's 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 not Call of Duty. What's it called? Delta Ops Afghanistan or something? Task Force Delta Afghanistan. Yeah, I feel like you could just put words together and make you like Hotel Army Guns Afghanistan, and it'll be the same thing. Yeah, Hotel Bravo. I'm sure that's the game that Trent's got on his list, isn't it? No, <laughs> no. I, I'm actually I'm actually quite looking forward to It Takes Two. I really liked the... Um, I was going to be all like, oh, it's really good. Like the original like game, like A Way Out. And then I'm like, oh, it's the same developer. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but like I really liked the concept in A Way Out where you had the split screen and that was really fun. And, you know, it was a cool new take on multiplayer for the time i guess so i'm more down for it takes two but it's a little bit more um you know i i, I don't know if my do bro friends will want to play that style of a game but we'll see we'll see and i didn't actually mention that one on my list uh it does come out on march 26 and i should have mentioned it because it does look good so mm. good choice there harvard Harvard, Trent. That was Trent. <laughs> that was Trent. I'm getting the two of you confused. It is early when we're recording this, so you have to forgive the fact that I make some stupid mistakes, like mistake Trent from Harvard for Harvard. Harvard, what's your favourite game for the month? I realised the bad Kingdom game I was thinking about was Kingdom Come Deliverance, which ah, right. may or may not be on Switch. But if Kingdoms of Amalur is good, maybe I'll check that out, because I am in the mood for something big in RPG this month, so we'll see how things go. Yet you'll certainly get big RPG out of Kingdoms of Amalur. It's a, it's a long game. It's it's a chunky. It is definitely a single player MMO, and that is 
done in a way that is actually good. Usually that doesn't work, but in this case it does. And I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. So enjoy. And it's old enough that it'll run Switch, right? You'd hope so, but this is the remake. (laughs) I mean, the remake looked pretty good on PlayStation 4, so they did do a fair bit of work in sprucing it up. Um, Uh... I am a little bit concerned about the performance, but for what it's worth, I'm going to pick it up anyway because I've got to... I'm going to hope... Do you know what I've really enjoyed lately is watching loading time comparisons on YouTube between Switch and PS4 <laughs> and PS5. And it's a lot of fun because PS5 is just instantaneous. PS4 is respectable. And Switch is just doing its best. It's just like instantaneous, four seconds, 35 seconds. And you're just there cheering the Switch on going, you can do it, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, but it's okay because once you get into it with the Switch, it's good. <laughs> That's what I like to think anyway. Um yeah, Matt, your turn. Pick one, anyone. I will pick a story of seasons because oh, the good go. harvest moon is always good, and this one there's a lot of cool new things that push the series forward a lot more than more recent games have. Um, I've also been playing a little bit, and I don't know. I don't. No, I'm, I'm, how much I'm allowed to say at this stage. Oh, hang on. But... I'll just check for you, Matt. Um, embargo lifts on the first. This will not be out. Of... Oh, you can talk about it. There you go. Yeah. By the time um, by the time this podcast is live, for other people to listen to, um, <laughs> embargo would have lifted. So go off. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It's the whole wilderness element of it, which has you rather than. I mean, you kind of you inherit a farm, but it's one that's been completely overgrown and reclaimed by nature more so than the ones in previous games so you're sort of carving out your own farm from the wilderness and venturing out into the forest to tame livestock and um yeah it gives you a lot more a lot of freedom to customize your farm and actually design the layout and that kind of stuff which previous games haven't i'll tell you what the game the game is a little bit cruel in one sense that uh on, on your very first day, you're wandering around just kind of clearing up some weeds and whatever and getting ready to start farming on the second day. Uh, and you see a chicken there. And it's like, oh, this chicken's so cute. He's so cute. Yeah. I'm going to tame him. I'm going to add him to my farm. And then they're like, no, you can't until you fix your barn up, mate. As I want my chicken, but he's just sitting there waiting for me. Wild. I'm very he, sad he about is, this. He is a very patient wild chicken. He just sits there. He's very good. It'd be so good if, just to be a troll, like, as soon as you build the barn, the chicken's, like, gone. (laughs) That would be right. That would be my luck. I've already named him, so, in my head. I've already given him a name. I need that chicken in my my farm. All right, and my pick, I guess. Uh, I'm going to go with Love Live, School Idol Festival, After School Activity, YY Home Meeting. That's my pick. Because I I'm do like the whole thing. I'm gonna. I, I, I did that just for Alan. I'm gonna. <laughs> he's gonna listen back. And he's gonna fume and he's gonna absolutely hate that I got to say that twice in one podcast. But I am seriously looking forward to the game. I like my rhythm games. I love Love Live. So there you go. That's gonna be fun. All right. That was a long section. So we will go to some more music. And the music is going to be from Love Live. And then we're going to come back and talk about some topics.
Welcome back, everybody. Right, so a pretty big game released this week, at least if you're a fan of the JRPG. It's called Bravely Default 2. It is exclusive to the Switch, and it is excellent. It is a very, very, very high-quality game indeed. I do have a review up on digitydownloaded.net just to shield my site a little bit, but I'm not the only one that's been playing it on the podcast. Matt has as well, and I'm sure... Everybody else here is going to pick it up when they get a chance as well. Um, Matt, I guess the reason we wanted to talk about this subject is because people will inevitably write up Bravely Default 2 as this retro-style RPG because it's got turn-based combat. It is very heavily inspired by Final Fantasy, and it just has that kind of look and feel of an old-school RPG. But in reality, it's kind of not, I think, is the probably the best lead into this section. So I know you agree with yeah. me that it's pretty pretty subversive to the traditional JRPG tropes. Yeah, I, yeah, it is. It definitely is. I mean, I'll probably say it is very much um, like in structure and tone and feel. I guess it is very much that classic JRPG, and so if that's what you want, it's it's not the, like a kind of it's not a game that's going to go so far out of its way to comment on the genre that you're not going to get that from it if that's if, if you just want to go and you know play a new version of final fantasy 5 essentially it'll do that but it's also yeah a game that just goes beyond just replicating that formula but kind of uses that as a basis to subvert it and comment on on the whole genre i guess um yeah, just in, in, in little ways of how it uses kind of those archety- those archetypal heroes of light characters that then kind of break away from the mold a little bit in quite subtle and quiet ways at first, but then as the game builds up, you sort of start to see that more and more. And then when you get to the end, it kind of throws everything out the window in true bravely fashion as anyone who's played the first two games will have encountered it yeah they do like they do like they do like doing things really weird in the second half of the games in in these series don't they um yeah but i guess i guess that's the kind of the point is like with with a lot of retro style rpgs and i'm going to reference tokyo rpg factory here because as much as i love them you know the likes of i am setsuna lost sphere and oninaki are very much games for people that are nostalgic for old style rpgs what I love about the Bravely series is they hit that really nice balance between being quite clearly retro-styled and old-school Final Fantasy, but also being something relevant to people who are newer to the JRPG genre. And I think that you don't have to be a fan of old RPGs to enjoy what Bravely is offering. Yeah, I think you're right. Um and saying that I think the things it does best are things that you'll most appreciate if you are, if you are a really diehard fan. And um, I think without that, a lot of the kind of subversiveness will just go over people's heads. Well, there is that too, for sure. I, I, certainly, yeah. I, I totally agree with you that if you are that old school fan of RPGs, you will get that interesting look at the the entire genre courtesy of bravely default to um as i think i wrote in my review it kind of comes across to me as this thesis about what made old 
JRPGs good. You know, into yeah. talk, looking at it as kind of a meta, a meta textual thing. Uh, it, it was very much this this argument for these are the qualities that make a JRPG good. We're going to make sure that we emphasize those and de-emphasize the bits that are perhaps not very uh, time, you know, they were products at the time and we can do them better now. So we're going to refocus this so that it remains a traditional JRPG, but at the same time is a modern retro JRPG. Which sounds weird, but it just works. <laughs> it's Wait, it, so it's very. It must be very difficult to do. Sorry. What's in and what's out with this game then? Like, what's the classic RPG stuff that they've gone? This is core, and we've got to keep it. And what stuff have they gone? Let's not have this anymore. Okay, so for me, I think the thing that stood out the most was the way they've streamlined progression through dungeons and stuff. So with the older JRPGs there would be an awful long grind, particularly at the start, where you had to kind of keep duck, ducking in and out of dungeons to fight enemies, um, mm-hmm. level up, go back to town, heal, go back into the dungeon, fight enemies, level up, go back into town. The Bravely system, as long as you've kept your characters leveled, and you're not playing on the hardest difficulty level, so on normal or easy, as long as you've kept your characters leveled, you actually make quite quick progress through dungeons and you're feeling pretty good about yourself you're you're defeating enemies without the attrition kicking in too much and then you get to the boss and the boss absolutely wallops you (laughs) um and that's when you need to grind or think about tactics and it becomes a much more complex thing so what they've done is really focus the energy of the combat system on those boss battles and really emphasize those while making the progress it's still there it's still important and it's still a part of the game there's still some grinding involved if that's what you're interested in as far as retro rpgs are concerned but they've done it in a way that's quite streamlined and rapid so that for me is the most clear thing where if i was compared to compare to an older like final fantasy one or whatever or two or five where you the progress can be quite slow between boss battles at times with bravely default it seems to be a bit more streamlined is it like the 3DS game where you have to make a game plan for every boss battle, basically? So Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's, that was my favourite thing about that game. Until oh, they yeah. overdid it, is that every fight, you, you get destroyed the first time because you make an assumption. Like, the game gives you... That's my favourite thing about the DS game. The, the game gives you an anti-mage weapon for the black mage fight. And you're like, this is going to work fine. And you use it and you get destroyed. And you have to go back to the drawing board and think, okay, I have these classes and these items. And how do I make my best strategy yeah. for this guy yeah yeah you absolutely have to they'll absolutely yeah. tra- trounce you the first time you fight any boss battle it will wipe wipe the floor with you because you won't have the right mix of character classes and whatever so each character can take two classes into battle now um i think they could be four couldn't they they could yeah they could take yeah. like a main and a secondary yeah that's exactly yeah. that system has been retained so you can have a main and secondary and then how you mix the effectively eight classes will determine whether you beat that boss or you're going to have a hell of a time trying to defeat them. Yeah. And not just how you mix those classes, but then how you take those classes and their abilities and mix them with the whole brave and default thing to steal turns and to do all that kind of stuff. I think one of the interesting new things that they've added this time battle system-wise is lots and lots of counters um, in terms of Yes, yes. In your, typi- in your typical old JRPG, you'd maybe get one or a couple of bosses that have, you know, will counter counter an attack as a gimmick against when you attack them. And here, 
there are basically counters for any kind of ability, uh, any sort of ability that you can do. So some bosses will have will counter when you cast magic or when you give yourself buffs or um, some of the later game bosses have just counter anything. So as soon as you do anything at all, they will do some sort of action in response. Um, and so that adds an another, for boss battles, but in particular, a layer of figuring out your strategy to work around those and deal with those, which I think is quite interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, I think for me, the, the the most interesting thing about how it that kind of modern retro thing is really in the in the storytelling and the characters and the way it unfolds in terms of you've got it's very much this very overt sort of classic Final Fantasy four heroes of light on a journey around the world to restore power to the crystals to stop an ancient evil kind of thing. And it's very much set up as this story about heroes chosen by fate or prophecy or whatever you have, which is that kind of classic JRPG setup. But then it sort of, as the game progresses over the course of however many dozens of hours it takes, that sort of, that kind of morphs slowly and becomes more about a story about rejecting the idea of fate and about, um, becomes more, more a thing about heroes are people who choose to do heroic things regardless of what destiny says, even if that means going in the face of fate or prophecy or anything like that. Yeah, it's a little bit uh, like Final Fantasy Thirteen, hey? <laughs> um, yeah. Only where Final Fantasy Thirteen tried to be this hyper-modern JRPG, this one does it in the context of something more traditional. But yeah, the narrative tropes are, or the narrative beats are quite similar, and I like yeah. that. I, I Because, you know, determinism, the idea that everything's kind of set in stone and you're, you're kind of following a path that you don't really necessarily have control over. That is a philosophy that's driven just about every JRPG since forever. And it is something that I, I get the feeling that a lot of JRPG developers try to challenge. So especially Square Enix, they, they're kind of sick of doing that with Final Fantasy. So Final yeah. Fantasy 13 definitely challenged that idea. Final Fantasy 7 Remake absolutely trashed it. Uh, yeah. And this game also does it, but just in a context which is where those two games try to be very modern and push the gameplay side of the RPG forward as well. This game does so within the context of a more classical RPG, which is great. I think that's brave storytelling in a lot of ways because there is that yeah. risk when you try and modernise anything within a, a game that's specifically trying to be retro that you're going to upset a lot of people uh, that like their JRPGs the way that they used to play them. I was going to say with yeah. that because the the trend with Final Fantasy, the mainline series, has just been Square Enix going, we're going to make what we want to make. So they've made the Bravely series as a side thing to be producing old-style RPGs as well. It's kind of like appealing to the 1-6 to six fan base, right? But would you say that they don't actually worry that much about what that fan base might think and how closely they follow that old formula? No, they do, I think. But they want to, at the same time, they, they want to be inspired by those games and they want to inspire people that enjoyed those games but they don't want to be beholden to them they want to still make a game that has its own thing to say and i think that's the difference between because like i mentioned earlier in the in in this section uh the tokyo rpg factory developers 
they also want to make games that are inspired by the games of yesteryear, but they feel very much kind of beholden by them. They don't challenge them anywhere near as much. This game actually challenges them in a way that's interesting and invigorating while remaining respectful for the basis of the, the experience. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that like Square Enix are, um, you know, they're, they're able to do given the catalog of games that they've got is they can, you know, they can, they can talk about their own work um, mm. with authority and, and challenge their own ideas and get away with it because like, who's going to tell them that they don't know what a Final Fantasy or what a, what a JRPG <laughs> is, right? Um, well, a lot of people try, <laughs> <laughs> but it's. It, I think it's something that like um, one allows them to be experimental and flexible like that, uh, but it also kind of shields them from um, being too, I, I guess, harshly criticised for subverting their own tropes. Um, because at the same time, they're also, you know. They, they will still be making a game that's going to have, you know, crystals telling people what to do and, and groups of people who are, you know, you know, pursuing ominous monologuing like weirdos. Um, and, and all of that, like, is still, it's still present, even if it is there subverting itself, which I think is a lot of fun. I also think that Screenix is in a fortunate position that they such a factory of this genre <laughs> that if they make a game that really annoys a, a percentage of the fan base i think on some level most of the people in that fan base realize that they'll be able to just play the next one um, <laughs> you know if if i mean final fantasy 15 being probably the perfect example of that that game was not for a lot of final fantasy fans and i think a lot of those fans that were upset with it, there were obviously some that just went absolutely feral because this is the games industry and that's what happens. But I, I think a, a good chunk of those people that didn't enjoy Final Fantasy 15 knew on some level that they'd be able to look forward to Bravely Default or Final Fantasy 16 or Dragon Quest 11. You know, there was always going to be another game from Square Enix that would right the wrongs as such and give them what they want to play as well. And I think Square Enix has been very good at making sure that it doesn't repeat itself. It always has these different balls in motion and it's trying different things and it blends tradition and modernity and stuff. Whereas some other developers, for example, Bandai Namco, they can't really mess with their Tales series because that is their one JRPG franchise. And if they screw that up, their fan base don't have anything else to look forward to as such. That's my yeah, thoughts absolutely. anyway. <laughs> that's a good point I hadn't even thought of that that's, that's really yeah. interesting actually that's actually I also cool. wanted to ask um, because Brady Defaults and when it, the first one came out it was kind of this discussion about turn-based combat and there's two sides of games criticism one where it's like turn-based combat is a thing of the past and we should move beyond it and another one that's saying we can still keep this relevant we just need to find ways to make it work and I wanted to ask your opinion if you're, if you think there's still a space for turn-based combat, and especially Lee, because I think most of your games have had really good action RPG systems. I kind of faded a great action system. Would that have worked in a similar way if you implemented turn-based combat? Uh, I think uh, there's a significant portion of our audience that probably would have embraced the game more had we uh, gone a more traditional turn-based route. Um, which have, like wasn't anything that the studio was interested in pursuing at the time, um, but 
I have every now and then I, you know, have a, a, a weird moment of nostalgia where I try and figure out how, how such a thing would have functioned. Um, particularly given that, uh, since defiance closure and even, you know, the, the year prior to it, there have been a bunch of games that are like, we're a roguelike with cards and you're doing all this stuff and they're all turn-based games. Um, so every now and then I'm like, what would it have been like if we'd have like, like tapped into that zeitgeist? Um, I think, I think Darkest Dungeon was probably the one that really kicked that new trend of turn-based roguelike off. Um, yeah, yeah. Darkest Dungeon that... definitely was a hugely influential game in terms of the ability to have hard, difficult, challenging, turn-based combat in these games. That mm. was... It brought it back, I think. Yeah, I, I think that um, there's still plenty of plenty of life to be squeezed out of turn-based combat, um, particularly when people are, you know, remixing it or, or reimagining it. Darkest Dungeon is, is a great example where, um, you know, it, it has a bunch of, like fun positioning stuff that uh it really like drilled down into there's there's a lot of opportunity for fun tactical options in turn base that uh you know don't become available or become much more uh strenuous to to manage in real time uh and you can you can achieve different things with it certainly um i would love to be able to work on on a turn-based game in future um, and uh, I think a bunch of other, uh, you know, ex-defiant devs are also sort of looking in that general direction these days. So we'll we'll see what happens. What happens uh, there? I, I would say though, one thing that will back to Bravely Default. Um, I didn't feel like I should be playing this game on my TV, <laughs> as such. <laughs> the the reason being that this game is so traditional about its turn-based combat, and it feels like it is very much a, a game of yesteryear in, far, in terms of the way it presents the combat system. Yeah. Um, a lot of other JRPGs that I've been playing that ha still have turn-based combat systems do absolutely everything they can to try and conceal the kind of sedate pacing of that. I'm thinking games like uh, Atelier Riser, for example. It has a turn-based combat system, but it really kind of uses visual trickery to mask that and make it look like it's a lot more dynamic and exciting then perhaps Bravely Default tries to do it, where in Bravely Default, they kind of stand there and they just swing their sword and then the damage appears over the enemy's head and, you know, it moves on. Bravely Default has all this... Oh, sorry, Atelier Riser has all this movement going on and all these kind of dynamic camera angles and they try and be very cinematic with it. Uh, other developers try and turn... try and do a turn-based turn -based combat system in a way that looks like it's action-based. So I'm thinking mm. Final Fantasy XV and Final Fantasy VII Remake. They're actually turn-based in terms of the ebb and flow of the combat system, but it just doesn't stop moving. So they hide the <laughs> it, it, they hide the ATB bar as such, but it's still there. It's mm. still a, a mechanic. So they try and hide the fact that they're turn-based by making it look like they're action-based combat systems. So Dragon Quest did the same thing as well, which yes. is, is fun that... Um, it seems like positioning means anything at all in that game, and and it does not. <laughs> it, exactly right. You know, they make it look like you can move around. It's almost tactical in terms of the uh, combat system, but no, it's really the, just actually exactly what Bravely Default did. But I spent so much time 
and Dragon Quest Eleven, like moving around trying to see if I could dodge attack. <laughs> like, oh, if, I, if I if I move my hero over to the side, like far away from the others, then these like kind of big group attacks won't hit. No. It's just you can move if you want to for no purpose whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, so so I think Bravely Default is kind of unique in the fact that it is willing to just be two lines of enemies standing against each other and then swinging their little swords at one another. So, yeah, I, I think that that kind of turn-based thing is quaint, and they put it in there in that way to be quaint. I think turn-based combat as a thing will remain, but I think that developers will continue to try and find ways of disguising it so that people who are perhaps put off by the idea of boring turn-based combat will still find a way to enjoy the, what they're doing. Just imagining like an ATB bar with the disguise, I mean, like a trench coat, and one day they just open up and say, like, surprise, it was me all along. <laughs> and then the rest of the game, you have to play with like the bar actually there and it's slightly slowed down. <laughs> well, the thing is, it actually works. Like I, I so, so many people think that Final Fantasy VII Remake and Final Fantasy XV are action games. And I... It kind of worked too well with Final Fantasy VII Remake. I know a lot of people actually got really stuck with it because they were trying to play it as an action kind of button masher and it wasn't working. <laughs> um, it's only once you learn to slow down and play it like a turn-based game that it starts to make sense as a combat system. So, yeah, I think you need to be careful when you do that as well because there is the potential that people will end up thinking it's meant to be Dynasty Warriors and it's not, and then they get very upset with you. I saw that recently one of the uh, the directors on Final Fantasy 16 was in a, a radio interview having to reassure people that the new game is going to be like playable for people who don't care for action games, uh, which is, <laughs> yeah, they've they've certainly like changed the perception on the series, even if they haven't actually mechanically altered how they, they work under the hood. Yeah, yeah, it's really amazing this, uh, how people have, come to assume that Final Fantasy 15, or oh, the Final Fantasy series is about increasingly fast action when it really never has been. It's 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 fun. I mean, this guy, the guy that's doing Final Fantasy 16, his last, well, his probably most notable game is The Last Remnant. And that is as turn-based as turn-based games yet. So I'm really going to be interested to see how he goes about disguising it so it looks like it's a little bit more PC for the new age Final Fantasy fan. Harvard, your comment about putting an ATB bar in a trench coat, that is the kind of thing that I wouldn't wouldn't even surprise me if a future Bravely game did something like that. <laughs> just literally um, an ATB like, bar in a trench like, coat. Just, like, literally, yeah. Like, this is... I don't want to say too much about Bravely Default 2, like, just for spoilers and stuff, but it is a game that, especially towards the end, isn't afraid to just completely break the fourth wall in that sort in that sort of way um and so I'll, like if i talk a, bit, a little bit about bravely second which was the previous game um no don't ask to, about the which no one played and the people who played it hated it and which is bizarre to me because it was brilliant but this is that was a game where i mean you have a lot of sort of fake endings and um that kind of stuff which is all kind of just standard now for bravely but there's a point in that game where in order to progress you get kind of get a game over and you get kicked back to the main screen in order to progress you have to go to the load screen and attempt to delete your save at which point the villain kind of interrupts your efforts to delete everything and then the, the game progresses from there and it's that that kind of thing that 
I think is one of the most interesting things about the Bravely series as a whole. Um, but Bravely Default do Bravely Default Two does similar sorts of things, not maybe not quite to the same extent, but I, I think yeah, that's one of the most interesting things about the way it kind of sets up the very classic formula so that it can break it essentially. Now that yeah. you bring that up, I remember the most devious thing that I remember from Bravely Default One, which was the game was inspired by the DS game, Final Fantasy Four Heroes of Light. And the one complaint that everyone had about Four Heroes of Light was that your party of four heroes had the worst communication issues and would always split up like a Scooby-Doo gang and then get completely destroyed. And then all your gear would be sent away. And the first thing that happens in Bravely Default when the four heroes get together, one of them just leaves the inn and it gives you the message, ring a bell has left your party. And then my brain was like, nope, you're not doing this to me. And then he just walks back in. And then they're just stuck as four <laughs> together for the rest of the entire rest of the game. I'm just like, you're, you're messing with me right now. You are yeah, very I, clearly I, destroying this. I'm pretty sure down the track, Yoko Taro is going to get involved with a Bravely Default, default game. I mean, it's just, there's a natural synergy there between the way he thinks about games and the way that these games like to subvert things. And the I would whole, certainly uh, like to save think... game thing is very, oh, sure. very near. Yeah. Yes, that is. And anyway, on that note, we need to move on because we've got plenty more to talk about on this podcast. And as much as we'd love to talk about RPGs forever in a day, we do need to move on to the next thing. So we'll go to some music from Bravely Default and we will come back with the next section.
And welcome back, everybody. Okay, so there was another really interesting release that happened, what, about a week ago now? Um, and it came as a result of the Nintendo Direct. They were like, hey, look, we've got this coming. You can download it now. And then, of course, people did. And they've been talking about it a bit ever since because it is a particularly good thing that they've done. And it's Capcom has got a whole bunch of their titles together, uh, their old arcade games, and thrown them into this virtual arcade system. Uh, it's called Capcom... What is it called? Capcom... Arcade Stadium. That's the one. And it's really good. You get to play all your favourite Capcom games of yesteryear, be them the really obvious ones, like 1941 or Ghosts and Goblins. That's the one, isn't it? That's the arcade one. Ghouls yeah. and Goblins. Whatever. That one. Um, the guy that wears the knight's armour and then when he gets hit by an enemy goes into his underwear and then gets defeated. That's yeah. the game. Um and then it also has a couple of their more obscure ones. So things like Dynasty Wars or, uh, yeah, just some of the, the kind of the oddball games that have been in Capcom's catalogue. And you can buy these in big blocks of 10 games. And obviously, once you buy them, credits are unlimited. But, yeah, it, the, the present, presentation of the, um, the collection is what's probably most interesting to me because it does have this feel that you're moving through an arcade when you're going through the menus rather than just selecting a game off a kind of static menu you actually scroll through arcade cabinets and then when you select the one that you want to play the arcade cabinet kind of zooms in but you still see the arcade cabinet around the edges and it has that experience that as somebody who did spend a bit of time in arcades as a kid uh, it's quite nostalgic so that's i guess what we wanted to talk about in the context of this podcast is there are a lot of retro compilations coming out and it is very important that the developers try to preserve the experience of these games not just in terms of the gameplay but also what these games offered players back in those days and i think that this arcade stadium is probably the best example of how to approach this that we've seen yet is that fair to say people disagree with me no, that's, that's pretty fair. Um, there was an attempt a couple of years ago that I thought was really interesting on um, like the Xbox Live on the, the 360 to have a complete uh, arcade experience similar to this where you would be like moving around. Um, it was done by a bunch of, uh, I think it was Chrome actually was associated with it. And they it was initially Microsoft's idea to, to get this thing together. And then all of the licensing I think they all pulled out like one by one and so they constructed this perfect like wonderful um you know physical representation of an arcade to walk around in and they didn't have any games for it oh no so, yeah. <laughs> that's horrible that's that's so yeah. unfortunate yeah yeah because initially they were going to have like massive releases all attached to it where they would have these wonderful one-to-one -one recreations of classic cabinets and then in the end they had maybe like six games and they were all like weird and obscure uh and so you know that was that was an idea that was like you know perfectly like ahead of its time uh and so i i love any collection that tries to like present itself as an arcade of uh, as a as a an, an archive of arcades and the cabinets as like physical artifacts so this is this is really fun and exciting for me well that was i mean that's a big part of the experience of going to an arcade is you, know, you got your money in your hand or whatever especially when you're a kid and 
money came at a premium. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was basically what your parents would actually give you to, to shut you up for a while. But you'd have the money in your hand and you'd actually be carefully considering which of these arcade cabinets you wanted to play. And you'd have the little you know, demo screen that you'd be looking at. And if you're anything like me, you'd end up playing just Space Invaders anyway, because that was the safe choice. Um, <laughs> I got really good at Space Invaders. <laughs> but yeah, the, that was a big part of the experience. And a lot of these kind of um, compilation collections just think that the, the only reason that people would want these is the game. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm... a good example of a great arcade I actually had fairly recently was two years ago, three years ago. Uh, I went to the Kawasaki City Arcade, which was a famous one in Japan at the time, that was all modeled like the, the it was like a seven story arcade. And it was all modeled on Kowloon, the, um, the infamous Chinese uh, slum or Hong Kong slum. And it inside you'd have like... It was just such a, a visual experience to be in there, in that space. And it was more than just the arcade games. It was also the, the actual environment that you're walking around. Unfortunately, that is closed now. And this arcade collection made me think, well, what if they were to start doing things like with, with VR as well? You know, if you could put the VR headset on and they could actually model an arcade room and then you'd go and pick your arcade cabinet and then you'd sit virtually sit down and and that would work for vr because a lot of the strengths of vr are where you're physically stationary and you'd be able to do that in a way that was kind of visually engaging and uh kind of immersive so i'd like to see these kinds of things continue that, yeah you said that we thought really gone full circle because in the past we had to go to the arcades to play the newest games and then the marketing strategy was to say you can play the arcade games at home and now at home we're digitally going to the arcades <laughs> yeah that's exactly right it's kind yeah. of everything comes around again i think it's actually that's a really good idea um particularly given that like the way that netflix and other streaming services use vr is by recreating like a really nice living room or a or a cinema right mm -hmm. i think that people would actually especially in the hell time that we're living in now would love to be able to move around in a recreation of an arcade you know you could put humans in it and then people could feel like they were in a, a, a populated space and then they could like you know stand or sit at the cabinet of their choice and just you know play a, a retro game that does not need to be in a in a 3d space at all and yet is somehow enhanced by the fact that you can like you know, get up right real close and look at the cabinet and see the the gunge that's collecting around the <laughs> the, the buttons. <laughs> Too bad we don't have smell of vision or anything like that yet. So yeah. we, we won't have the gross uh, sweaty smells or anything like that. Or you know, I, I'm just thinking, you know, you know, the the same adaptation of an arcade could be used for like a casino lounge and have casinos everywhere. And, don't give you know, them have, ideas. Have, have the smoke everywhere and Stop you know, like. Man, Right Trey, we're going to shut you down here. We don't want to encourage the casinos on this here podcast. You know, I'm it's, just from the country. You know, we do things differently out here. Maybe, uh, but arcades yeah. are good. There's a, a couple of things on that note that I think Arcade Stadium is missing. One of them is that there is this very nice new music that plays in the in the sort of menu while you're selecting your game, which is it's a new a new arrangement 
and it's you know it's it's fine it's good it does what it needs to i think there should at least be the option of just having hearing that clamor of <laughs> all the different yeah. cabinets and their demo screens all oh, yeah. playing, yes. playing, oh, playing their that. music at once and just that kind of cacophony when you walk into an arcade yeah arcades have a very uh, special soundscape and they should yeah, definitely have captured that I think that would, that would be that would be really cool to have and then and the other thing it doesn't have like the actual cabinet art anywhere as far no. as i as i've seen um so it's kind of there are a, a, a variety of different actual cabinets themselves that you can unlock which are all based on the different designs of various um cabinets and stuff but none of them have you know those those marquees that and the in playing instructions and all that kind of stuff which i think is a missed opportunity too oh, i think sure. i think one thing that, that they could uh, one thing that i'd like to see them to kind of extend in your idea there matt one thing i'd like to see them do with these things is take them more seriously as a kind of a, a virtual museum as well um and i there was this really wonderful and it's been closed ever since uh, about six years ago when i was in japan i went to one of the regional cities and they had a kind of a museum to old arcade games and pinball tables in there and they had like 60 pinball tables and like 100 old arcade games we're talking really old ones here and on each of them there was like this little description there which was not just how to play the game but there was like this little writing explaining what the game was and its historical influence and you know that kind of thing and i would love to see them do that with these these kinds of museums like explain this game was designed by this person they were looking to do this with it it was this successful sold this many units all that kind of stuff um just capture not just the game itself which is kind of self-evidently good with a lot of, most of these games anyway but also just bring context into it because i think we're at that point now where the older games in the video game industry are as works of art something worth preserving for their cultural uh, heritage and value and i think we're losing that a little bit that we're not also preserving kind of the, the conversation around those games if that makes sense yeah, I feel like that's such an afterthought because there's some compilations that are very good with this and have everything unlockable and really well connected to the game. And there are some compilations where they just don't put anything up or they'll put a soundtrack or they'll put like an additional promotional art or something and just call it a day. And I wish there, you're right, I wish there was much more commitment to preserving all that side of things. I mean, Capcom themselves did it with the previous release, their Street Fighter collection which is an absolutely mm. spectacular collection of games. And well, I say that... Which, which one do you mean? The the one with all of Street Fighter 2 and 3, or the one with yeah, yeah, just the, Street Fighter 2? No, no, the one with all of Street Fighter 2 and 3. It was released on the Switch about two years ago. Um, it was like 15 Street Fighter games. And I say this as somebody who wasn't a big fan of Street Fighter. I love that package because it had, like, huge amounts of additional information and concept art and i think it had concept art it, it had this like real weight of material behind it to explain why these games are worth preserving and the, that one i've been waiting for another developer to start doing that in their games and they just don't i don't know why i, I, uh, I assume they have access to this material and they just don't do it i don't know why the samurai showdown collection that came out last year did the same thing Oh, did it? It's oh. got a really good, it's got, you know, like concept art and design documents and kind of old interview footage that they've managed to dig up. 
Um, oh, that's the one like, I didn't play. I'll yeah. have to I'll have to grab that one just to support that. <laughs> that's the good yeah. thing. Like video, like old tournament footage from. Yeah, it's really it's a really like they went kind of above and beyond on that one to fit as much of that kind of stuff in as they they could find. Um, I think they should. I mean, I think that that's part of the appeal of these things. It's kind of tapping into people's love of these old games and explaining to newer players, you know, why they were so respected. I, I, I was so annoyed by the the Space Invaders one, and <laughs> I love that Space Invaders collection. I play it a lot because I love Space Invaders. But all it is is like seven or eight games, and they're just listed on a menu, and you just select the one you want to play, and you play well, you get on the leaderboard, but that's it. And there's just so much behind Space Invaders that they could do, and they just ignored all of that. So, Going back to your um, thing about, you know, Reserve, you know, preserving source spaces and stuff like that. I had kind of the idea of like, because you start veering onto like, you know, cabinets and stuff. But what about if they like have real world locations for in the VR space? Like, it's like, well, experience this like arcade from like how it was in the 80s, and then it has like all the arcades and stuff. But it's like a real world space in VR. That that would be well. And I I really think there would be interest in recreating some of the more interesting arcades because arcades yeah. are on their way out now. You know, they're, they're going, going, gone. There aren't that many of them left. Even in Japan, they're closing down. And preserving the ones that were interesting, like the one I mentioned in Kawasaki City, which was designed after Kowloon, there are, there are a lot of arcades that were quite interesting in terms of how they were designed and laid out and stuff. And actually recreating those in a VR space would be worth doing, I think. One more thing that I was interested with the Capcom collection and I think, Matt, when you were talking about the Samurai Shodown collection, maybe this is what they were trying to do. The whole thing with arcade games was you would kind of learn how to play the game with the people at the arcade. And it was just this co- the collaborative effort of trying to get bang for your buck and not lose your money to greedy Konami or whatever. And people would teach you what was the best way to do combos and fighting games or to play well in shmups. And I'm a bit younger, and I realized that I don't know how to play shmups. I, like, I know how to move my ship around, and I know how to shoot, but I don't know how to get the high scores. I had to look up YouTube videos on how people did it, and I wish there was some kind of way to replicate that as well. Maybe just game footage or a demo mode or hints and tips or something so you can learn how to get really good at the game. Uh, yeah, uh, the SNK collection that came out, a couple of years ago, I think, um, did a kind of interesting thing with that where um, there was an option you could just watch an expert playthrough. Yeah, there was and a perfect then, there was a perfect run yeah. that was built into every game, um, which you could then you take, could drop. Yeah, yeah, you could drop in and out of. So if you're struggling with a boss, you could drop out just before the boss battle. Watch the kind of the perfect run deal with the boss and then drop back in again afterwards and you could learn how to the tactics for beating the boss that way that was pretty cool mm. in an otherwise pretty pedestrian package <laughs> yeah. uh, i thought that was a pretty good feature yeah i think apparently the blizzard one that just came out last week does this some I haven't, I haven't played it but apparently it has the same kind of thing oh, does I, do, I do really want to try that there's only three games on it though right there's blackthorn and the lost vikings and this other one Rock yeah, I, I kind of, yeah. I kind of feel sorry for Blizzard because, except I don't because it's Blizzard. But, <laughs> I was going to say, 
but yeah, releasing the that arcade collection, which is a objectively you know three good games there, uh, but doing it after Capcom just dumps like its entire history on on arcade fans was just not great timing for them. Also, like none of those were actually arcade games when they came out, right? Like um, uh, they were they were like Mega Drive and Super Nintendo games. Um, oh, was so, it? Yeah, yeah. There was no like arcade cabinet version of Lost Vikings or of Rock and Roll Racing. Those were they were straight to console. See, this is why I do not like Blizzard. They play tricks with their <laughs> they play tricks. They're, they're a nasty company. They're riding on that nostalgia. Yeah, but yeah. saying that, saying that, I can't wait to play Diablo too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, those are all like they, as you say, they're all great games. Like I'm extremely tempted just for rock and roll racing again. Like that, that thing whipped. Um, but yeah, I I saw their presentation and I saw the the they're actually using arcade cabinets and I was just like, what what alternate reality are you presenting to me? <laughs> I was there. I was alive. <laughs> Oh. Of all the evil things Blizzard could do, convincing Yuli that they, they released an arcade version of a game that you know didn't exist is really low on the list of profitability for evil schemes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's just how, like, the kind of resources they've got access to, right? Now it's just it's individually driving people up the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. They're just targeting people. They've got, they've got data on you, Lee, and they just specifically did it to get you that's their, their next um, project, Matt, is to get a Miku license so they can make a Miku Battle Royale. Don't you dare. <laughs> I say it was on the dare. arcade. <laughs> Miku Arcade was really good. <laughs> that, uh, I mean, <laughs> jokes aside, the, the popularity of Miku Arcade just goes to show just how much people do still love their arcade games because that uh, Miku release on the Switch, you could buy a full recreation of the arcade controller for it and that controller was eight hundred dollars i want to say and it sold out isn't it a four button game yeah and swipe why, buttons why do you need a... it yeah. because on in the arcade they're big and glowy yeah. <laughs> big um, and glowy and easier to hit okay but I guess that's kind of the next step. I mean, I wonder if we're going to get to the point where these companies realize that people actually still want the full arcade cabinet. Uh, I know you can get the mini ones at the moment, but I'm sure at some point Capcom or Konami or anyone that also has a big range of old retro kind of arcade games will actually recreate these arcade cabinets for home use and they'll charge you $1,500 for them or whatever and people will buy them. That's not my problem, is that I grew up in the era where arcades were on their way out, and so developers were thinking, okay, what experience can we give them that they can't already get at home? And so I grew up with all the big, chunky, strange controller games like Bishi Boshio and um, Time Crisis, and that is gone forever. I'll never experience anything like that ever again. Yeah, and all the great little horror, well, mm. all the great horror games where yeah, you actually be inside horror, the... Yeah, yeah, the, the games. The, the booth and mm. yeah that those were those would be impossible to recreate in a way that's interesting and you know home video games i'd, I'd so love to play like a, a luigi's mansion arcade oh. at home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
They actually did a, a Luigi's Mansion arcade. Yeah, yeah, they did. They with did, like yes. with a, a full like like vacuum like headset, <laughs> and I think they did. They they might have been three D, maybe not. Um, but yeah, it was a full you know the cabinet you go inside and it blasts you with air while you're in there. And I so I want good. that. I want to plug that into my Switch. See, see, I like that because I like the I like the cabinet games which still exist, which are like like the water one. You shoot like water, and it like kills like the like um, um, the monsters on the screen. I like that one because that's fun and it's like interactive, and you got like real world like AI stuff. Like, yeah, I like that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's what they get you is like you can't get that at home, so you have to come out to the arcade for it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that was sustaining arcades were the UFO catchers. Uh, and <laughs> unfortunately for the arcades, you can even do that at home now. Um, you can actually get apps. You can actually get apps to manually control the UFO catchers remotely. And a lot of people in Japan are actually just playing these UFO catchers now on their apps. And when they win the prize, it gets mailed out to them as is <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> and it's pretty, like... I've used one. It's pretty good. Like it works right. And if you're uh, the the UFO catcher prizes in Japan are a little uh, are of a different league to in Australia. So in Australia, the few UFO catchers we still have are always Pokemon stuffed toy ripoffs, which are not official by any means, and certainly don't look like they were made by anybody with any quality control. But in Japan, you get figures and you know huge plushes and these are all kind of official products of their companies. And if you're into those things, you've got to spend a lot of money on them. I know I did have tried to get some of the Miku figures while I've been over there. And yeah, the UFO thing was still a big reason that arcades were still doing strong in Japan. But now that you can do that from home, that's another blow to the industry as such. It's all going on its way out, unfortunately. And on that happy note, we'll go, to, <laughs> we'll go to some music and we'll come back and um, talk about something else. The music we'll use is maybe that title screen from the... Oh, Arcade okay, Stadium theme? Oh, yeah. it's such a good song.
and welcome back everybody okay so for the final section of the podcast this week we have got a special guest lee on so we're going to just ask him questions we're going to do the journalist thing we're going to be interviewers <laughs> you ready lee yeah yeah go for it <laughs> right no I, I was going to say something very uh i was going to ask you a very hard question but i won't oh, <laughs> You can, you can, we'll work our way up to it. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Pineapples and pizza. Go. Answer. <laughs> uh, I used to be uh, against it, but I've come around in like the last year or two because there's a very good like supreme pizza that uh, is in my neighborhood, which is all about pineapple and it works, uh, which I know is, you know, that's a heathen response, but I'm into it these days. No, it's yeah. actually mandatory on digitallydownloaded.net that you like pineapple on pizza. Oh, there we go. Yeah, it's, it's a rule. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay, but all, in all seriousness, so you've been around in the Australian industry for long enough now. Can we call you a veteran? I guess we can. You, you, get, to be so, a, yeah. you get to be a veteran now. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, I'm old at least, so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> so you've gone through it all, really. So you, you've created games that have been very popular or at least very well received by the communities. Uh, you've had the less than pleasant experience of being in a studio that has uh, closed its doors. Um, I guess my first question for you would be in terms of the Australian video game industry, um, how did, how did that feel? Like when, when Defiant kind of closed up, um, given that the industry here is relatively small uh that must have been a concerning couple of months for you <laughs> trying to look for more work after that and then yeah. you've learned it in this kind of is it fair to call you a freelancer now yeah yeah i'm a freelancer these days uh and and reasonably comfortably so so that's that's good um but yeah to answer the question it, it was a real surprise i think because defiant uh for a, a good many years certainly presented itself as being uh, in a strong position and and used that um, that that clout and that success uh, to attempt to bolster the local industry uh, mm. and and present the Australian industry as, as being strong and so to discover that um, you know that we were essentially you know a, a couple of weird deals away from being completely shuttered uh, just you know came out of nowhere um so yeah it was it was a shock and it was um a struggle because i wasn't really sure you know where i'd be able to you know find the same kind of opportunities that that were being offered to me there um and it was a, a couple of desperate months certainly i remember uh that was july of 2019 and um things were looking quite bleak for me for for a while, like I, I went along to the um, the Paxos of that year. Uh, it was like the first one in in ages where I was like, okay, I desperately need to like connect with people and and like try and sort something out. Uh, like I was I had a, a real like plan to weasel my way into someone else's games, <laughs> um, and none of that panned out. Uh, and then like the week that I got back. I was offered like two different jobs uh, locally, and those have helped keep the wolves at bay, <laughs> <laughs> and will will likely lead into you know ongoing stuff. Um, but 
yeah, the, the the games industry in Australia is is so um, like there are a bunch of really strong communities, um, but if you are not attached to them in any way, it becomes a lot harder to to find work. Um, and fortunately, I've been uh, connected enough through both working at Defiant and being being press before that. I, I hosted a, a radio program in Brisbane for like ten years, so I've been able to like to to be an entity within the Australian games industry for a while, which made it a little bit easier for me to keep paying my my mortgage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that's always kind of interested me about the Australian industry is that it has traditionally been quite small. I mean, it had that period where it was fairly healthy because all the international studios had local guys, yeah. uh, local local outfits. But with the GFC, that all went away. Um, the, the perception I have now is that things are starting to get better again um, in the sense that there are more there, there are more games being made. There seems to be a fair few studios out there that are fairly bullish in terms of recruitment and there are a couple of big entities coming back uh, activision set up one mm. down in melbourne and stuff so and there's been a couple of big acquisitions as well so yes. it seems like there is money back in the industry now which is good for people who are maybe not attached to studios such as yourself <laughs> in terms of there, there may be you know a good range of opportunities coming up yeah yeah particularly if you are a little bit established i think you're in a position where maybe there's there's the chance to you know at least you know choose from one or two options which is nice um but it is still an industry that employs i think around a thousand people like nationally mm. uh which is you know nothing at all um and and has such a a disparity in the way that like you know, games funding exists from state to state. Like that, that, that is such a, an influence over um, not just the kinds of games that get made in Australia, but also the kinds of people who are able to make them as well. Um, so hopefully, you know, one day we'll get a bit more uniformity in, in as much as like the way that the industry gets supported um, nationally as well as on a state level. Um, like I think that will open it up once again. Um, and I, I have hope that, that things are heading in that direction. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of good if you're based in Melbourne, but nowhere else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as yeah. far as the Australian industry is concerned, because the Victorian government all by itself, you know, does a lot with video game industry. And there's also the kind of the supporting networks around it, like um, mm. ACMI constantly does video things with video games to highlight the local industry. Uh, you've got all the kind of the, the sporting bodies that are involved with video games that are all based out of Melbourne. So the, the entire infrastructure around video games seems much healthier there than anywhere else. Yes, um, yeah, which is good and bad. Um, like it's an amazing opportunity for all of those devs, but it does sort of mean that the industry itself, at least the, the communication that happens around it, seems to be focused on the fact that like all of the uh, the independent development in Australia exists within Melbourne and all of the, you know, the, the AAA stuff exists within Sydney just because, like, that's where all the, the, the press and the, the bigger, um, you know, the more traditional studios have, have had their offices, which, mm. you know, is, is difficult for, you know, like Brisbane uh, and Queensland has, you know, a reasonably strong industry, but you, you look at, you know, like... Um, you know, South Australia and Western Australia, um, where they've got amazing new programs being put together. Um, and, 
you know, it's just not getting the attention that it really deserves. Uh, that sort of that that Melbourne focus that Australia is, you know, really enjoys um, is sort of like both, uh, you know, a, a wonderful source of, uh, of of fantastic work in the games industry, but also like terrible frustration when you are desperately trying to, you know, get people to pay attention to what else is being produced here. Yeah, it's kind of like a black hole, isn't it? <laughs> it mm. kind of sucks everything in. And you're right. I mean, Adelaide has, uh, South Australia has done some big things with video games. Like The government itself has been quite willing to support the industry, as we've seen. Uh, they had a pretty big initiative that they announced, what, last year in terms of mm. funding or at least helping studios. Um, and Perth, I mean, Perth's an interesting one. Even somebody like me who covers the industry a great deal, I can only name one developer I know out of Perth, and that's um, Black Lab. Mm-hmm. And they obviously have the Battlestar Galactica and now Warhammer games, but I can't think of anybody else that kind of makes games out there. And that's a, that's not good for me. I'm sure there are other studios I should be aware of, but you're right. I mean, the focus is definitely on Melbourne and what the Melbourne studios are coming up with. Did you ever did you ever feel like you might need to move overseas? Was that ever an option for you? Um, yeah, it, it's been a thing that has been sort of a <laughs> threat more than anything. Um, <laughs> like I, I didn't want to. Uh, I really my my hope was that when Defiant shut, that I'd be able to figure out a way of, um, you know, being able to do what I do and and stay where I am. Um, and like morbidly, like COVID has made that much more viable now. I think that mm-hmm. the hope is that, you know, studios want to be able to just get back into the same building again. Um, but for the foreseeable future, I think, um, and, uh, like certainly the sort of like narrative roles that I'm interested in um, are things that people will be willing to to do uh, at the distance, but yeah, I've, I've looked at it. Um, you know, there are places in the world that I would love to move to or, or, or live in for a while. Um, not, not America so much, <laughs> um, but, but there are, you know, amazing studios a- across Europe and, and Japan as well that would be, you know, just amazing um, places to, to really, uh, like learn how things are done in the rest of the world as well, um, but but for now, I am I'm Australian based and hopefully for the foreseeable future. So, how have you found the kind of the freelance experience? Has um, it been a rewarding kind of process? Yes, yeah. Um, I've been lucky enough to be working on you know one or two things at any any given time. Um, which has allowed me to uh, get a bunch of experience under my belt that I hadn't had before and do a bunch of things that, you know, are very, like, rite of passage in in, like, games writing in particular. Um, so uh, within the last 18 months, I think I've, I've basically covered everything that, you know, a narrative designer, like, wants to do or then is like forced to do because no one ever wants to like sit down and write item descriptions. Um, 
but I I really love them. And now I I find having like had to do hundreds and hundreds of them, I now read them every time I'm in you know in a, my inventory in a video game, just to make sure that whoever was me on that game, uh, you know, gets their their due. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, like freelancing is, um, it's it's nice being able to you know, work at home, you know, with my dog uh, in his little dog bed, like two meters away from, from my desk. Uh, and I, I enjoy the flexibility that it offers. But I have been able to, like, go into a studio a couple of times a week uh, the last couple of months um, to, like, crank out the, the final work on a project that I cannot talk about at all. Uh, and it's been <laughs> nice being in a collaborative space again, um, like it's much easier to solve problems when you're face to face. Uh, that said, commuting can still like completely screw itself. I, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. that, I, I was sick of the process of having to go to work again within like three days. So yeah, uh, the commuters are, yeah. that's the worst thing. There were, there was a time that I was doing an hour and a half commute each way, um, for a job that I was doing and it was just not fun. It wasn't enjoyable on any level. Um, okay, I have a question about what you actually do rather than your, your background. Um, narrative, uh, working in narrative, just how much creative control do you end up getting? Uh, it, it depends on like the, the point at which I'm brought onto a project. Right. Um, so for something like Windbound, uh, I came on as a writer after the initial uh, narrative had been established by uh, the creative lead on the MS Studio, as well as uh, Mel T, who was another uh, designer uh, who'd been brought on to to help shape that world. And so um, there was a lot of stuff that had already been set in place, but I was also given a lot of flexibility to kind of find my own, um, uh, you know, stories with within within what had already been like built up around it. And I, I, I really enjoy working uh, within other people's established story spaces and like like picking away at the things that maybe they've they've just sort of like placed there without you know without touching too much. I like I like playing with other people's toys. Uh, <laughs> I, I you know I try to be respectful but I also like you know pulling them apart a bit just so that I can, you know, figure out how to reconstruct them again. Um, so um, I've, I've, I've kind of done both. I've, I've worked on stuff under creative leads who have had very strong visions. I've also been able to, you know, help refine the voice of characters. And uh, last year I also was, um, I, I did some consulting for, uh, Witchbeam, um, who are a wonderful Australian game dev that did a game called Assault Android Cactus and are working on uh, unpacking now. And um, so they've split off um, their, their devs uh, on multiple projects now. And they're working on a, a puzzle game, which looks very exciting, um, that uh, I, I can talk about a little bit because that, that's been announced, um, called Tempopo. And I uh, was was like just chatting with their lead designer over coffee. We were catching up uh, and he he mentioned one of the difficulties that he was having with like 
um, they'd, they'd worked out all the mechanics for their game, but they couldn't figure out how to tie it together narratively. And I, I made an offhand comment about how it should be about like uh, growing a garden of like um, animate plants that were also musical instruments. And um, he was, you know, he and I are pals, so I was just going to let him have that one for free. And I think he felt like morally obliged to hire me on to flesh that idea out because he was going to steal it either way <laughs> so so i got i got paid to to fill that idea out um and and that was nice that that was a good favor um <laughs> but uh yeah um it, it really all does depend on uh when you're brought on and a lot of games companies do sort of view writing as something that can happen like in the last couple of months you know we've we've built this game and we need to like you know work out what all these things say now uh which is like a fun challenge but also kind of like bullshit <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because we actually talked about that i think it was on what last week's podcast uh, last month's podcast that uh yeah it's quite noticeable in a lot of cases more so with the triple a space i guess that uh a lot of times they kind of shove the narrative in <laughs> to just make something work for the game that's already been designed. Yeah. And I don't know, my personal preference is I, I, I prefer when the narrative is more integrated into the actual concept of the game as well and the mechanics are built around telling that story a little bit as well. Yeah, I think like it works the other way around as well is that when you bring the writer in early on, they can, um, you know, if if you have established mechanics you want to work with, it's a lot of fun to try to figure out narratively how those things work. You can sure. create really unique worlds and and stories around these, like even just you know mechanical things that you want to do in a video game. It's much better being able to like have that set early on rather than having to try and justify it. At, you know, at the last minute. Sure. All right. Um. Given that you are a narrative designer, what is the narrative, I think, that you, maybe that you want to do the most? I mean, if you got to work on a dream project, what would that look like? I think that there are not enough uh, attempts at at recreating um, the, the Yakuza-style game experience like they're they're hugely popular. Like Yakuza is probably like my favorite game series, and no one is doing a, a Yakuza like, which I find really really interesting. Because to me, I think there's a really interesting mix of um, either very personal community based storytelling, as well as like being able to like grab someone by the face and hit them against a lamppost. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think that there there actually is some kind of magic that exists uh, at the crossroads between like beat-em-up and community-based storytelling. And I think more people should be like trying to do like a Yakuza like, you know, as a, you know, I want to see what like the indie take on that is. I, I want to see like how, how people can, um it can like you know really unpick those to work out like because there's so much going on in yakuza games that even even attempting to you know understand and recreate like a tiny facet 
I think is is going to yield really interesting results. And I, think, I hope that there's there's going to be some of that influence happening at some point in the future. Yeah, I, I just wonder if the reason that we haven't seen many other attempts at doing Yakuza, particularly from the Indies, is just that looking at them there from a design perspective, from a narrative perspective, they're just so overwhelming in scope. I mean, I, I actually think that a lot of people don't give enough credit to the Yakuza series that it's due because I think a lot of people look at it as relatively small, you know, open worlds and uh, it's easy to take for granted a lot of the stuff that goes on in those games. But you've got this perfect balance between fairly serious main narrative and completely oddball, like completely oddball side quests mm. uh, and side stories. You've got this really intense mix of humor and extreme violence and... Uh, you know, sex, and it all kind of comes together. You've got this underground concept, but you need to elevate these characters so they're kind of heroic. And on top of all of that, you've got to mix in all of these mini-games. A lot of them have their own little narrative arcs as well. And, mm -hmm. yeah, it just just thinking, if I even sit to think about what goes into a Yakuza game on any level, I'm just absolutely amazed by how it actually comes together because if any one of those elements is wrong, the whole thing just falls apart. Mm -hmm. and they just never get it wrong. I don't know how they've managed to do it across, like, six... It's not just that. It's not just the six Yakuza games. They've also done that spin-off, which was Judgment, which is mm -hmm. the same thing, and they've gone and done a Fist of the North Star game, which is in, yep. in the exact same style, and they've just nailed it with that one as well. It's, I just don't know how they managed to keep it up. It's it's incredible. Yeah, it is. It's impressive that, that they can keep reapplying that, that formula, and they can keep, you know saying hey we're we're going back to you know shijuku again uh i hope you 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 really enjoy this environment and and i do i love it you know it's like like i every time they they keep saying we're we are just refining the same like you know section of uh you know kabukicho um it's like i just Please, please keep yeah. taking me back there. <laughs> yeah, it's, my, it's my really, it's, thing. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, it's also always like the, the small things that gets me with these games. It's like I get homesick because mm -hmm. obviously I've spent a lot of time in Japan and I, you know, I really love being in the country. I get homesick every time I walk into a convenience store because the convenience stores, the way they've designed them and just mm -hmm. the experience of walking into a convenience store is a spot on recreation of the experience of walking into a convenience store in Japan. And that's different to what we have in Australia or whatever. You walk into a convenience store here, you know, you can get ripped off for buying a Coke. But over there, it's just a it's a different experience. And it's just those kind of little tiny things, the authenticity that just comes into these games that just makes the whole space so believable and so enjoyable to walk around um it yeah. it's it doesn't just happen <laughs> i think yeah. a lot of people like like i said a lot of people take take it for granted but it doesn't just happen even within the context of japanese developers making a game about their own country it doesn't just happen mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that there's there like uh, there, there's so much going on within them um, that again, yeah, like taking a look at any one element of that, like that recreation of a space, like, um, you know, I, Dottenbori is like my favorite place in the world. Uh, I, I, I love Osaka in general and Dottenbori specifically. And so seeing that recreated so faithfully in, you know, Yakuza's two and <laughs> Like uh, four and five and is is just like amazing. Um, 
and uh, but but you know that's that's something that other people uh, can attempt, and I think could be done, you know, extremely well. That like loving recreation of such a a new an iconic space, you know, that that someone has a real personal connection to. I would love to see someone else just be like, this is a neighborhood that I know and love, and I have, you know, ground it down to its essence, and now you can explore it. Um, you know, you might not be able to go into every building, but but maybe you can get a sense of what it is that makes, you know, just my suburb a fascinating place or you know, something something along those lines would be really interesting. Have to get have to get somebody to do like the rocks in Sydney. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> an, Austra- an Australian one where you've got like the small, uh, you know, like instead of like Seven Eleven, you have like some small little um, corner corner store in a little suburb. We're selling meats and like newspapers and ripping you <laughs> off with lollies. Yeah, <laughs> like how good would that be though? Like if to to go in there and you would know exactly like what kinds of like you know, lollies are going to be in the jars and the counter, right? You know that you can turn around and, like, open up the the ice cream freezer and grab a bubble bill, you know, and that's, that's going to convey some kind of bonus on you. Like, all of that stuff is, is just wonderful. And I, I want to see more people trying to, like, gamify their own little neighbourhoods. They could, they could make one of the challenges trying to get somewhere on time and have to use the Sydney transport system. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say the most perfect thing about Yakuza is that every single ad campaign that Sega makes for it seems to have trouble capturing all of the craziness. Mm -hmm. And the most effective promotion for that game so far has just been Bakumitai and a Japanese man in a suit singing an old power ballad in karaoke. (laughs) Captures the feeling of the game so much better than anything else I could ever use to describe it. Like When I heard that song and saw that video, I was like, I get it now. I understand what they're doing with this. Yep, hundred <laughs> percent. And on that note, we might give this podcast a wrap. Thank you very much for joining us, Lee. That was really interesting. Um, good stuff. Good content. I said the content. C word. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much again for being on. It's always a joy to talk with you and best of luck with your next games. We look forward to hearing more about them once they are formally al- announced and I'm sure we'll be in touch to talk about your rolling them again at some point. Um, otherwise, everybody else have a great month in the month of gaming ahead. Enjoy your games. Um, thanks as always for tuning in and we will see you next time. We're going to finish up with some music from Yakuza, I think, since we're talking about that. Um, we might just use the the street sounds. <laughs> no, no we'll, we'll, we'll get some music. From some arcade music. Yeah, some <laughs> arcade music. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next time.